all know how about that work out, right? <laughs> is that we are going to, this is going to be the last Tanya class of the year. <laughs> Why? Because it's a play on the year. It's not a play, it's actually, it's a real thing. I'll see you next year. Right. Tomorrow. Well, no, <laughs> not tomorrow, but yeah. So, my, the reason is I, I'm hoping that we can finish chapter one today. <laughs> and if we do that, I said that last week, right? I give a chassidish year on Shabbos, and um, it's already a well known thing that if I ever say we're finishing the Mayim of the discourse, the Shabbos, it never happens. Um, so, but anyway, my plan is to finish today, chapter one. And then tomorrow we are going to do something connected with the special davening of Rosh Hashanah. That's the plan. Um, but the plan might fail. I have faith. Okay. All right. So we're in the middle of talking about the so-called animal soul, although he doesn't call it the animal soul. And we described all of its negative attributes, qualities, and tendencies. Yes? So now we're going to resume. I don't know what page we're on because the page number is apparently different. I'm five. And um, we're starting from this soul. From this soul, sorry. From this soul. From this soul stem also the good characteristics which are to be found in the innate nature of all Israel. Did you know that all of Israel have innate good characteristics? Well, now you do. Okay. Such as mercy and benevolence. Okay. So apparently, the tendency of Jewish people to be merciful and benevolent is an attribute not of their godly soul, but rather of their animal soul. Now, there's a lot here that we need to cover. What? What I want to do um, is I want to go forward and then go backwards. Okay? All questions about non-Jews will wait to the part we get to about non-Jews. Okay? That'll make things go smoother. Okay. For in the case of Israel, this soul of the Klippa is derived from Klippas Noga, which also contains good as it originates in the esoteric tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so previously we learned that there was something called Klippa. Does anyone remember what Klippa is? Shell. Right. And a shell covers over what's inside, so you can't really tell what's inside of it. Now, Klippa comes in two kinds, two flavors. Okay. One kind is called Klippa Snoga. Okay. We'll worry about the other kind is called later. Okay. Does anyone know what the, word, word, what the term Klippa Snoga means? Neutral? No, it does not mean neutral. Doesn't it have holiness? I asked you to translate the words. And I, there's even a glossary in the back of the book, right? What? No, it doesn't. Although that is a reasonable mistake because if you spell um, no-go with an ayin at the end and then you have to change the vowels to make it no-gea, then it would be touch. But it's with a he at the end and it's no-go, not no-gea. So it doesn't mean touch. Nobody knows? Nobody would bother to look it up? But I just well, what is what does the word klipas no actually mean? What? That's what the glossary says. Doesn't say anything else. <laughs> Could be the glossaries are different in editions. I've come the page numbers are different. There's no telling, right? This is why in my kids' school they tell them exactly which edition of the book to get. Here, no, it has it right there. Translucent. Noga means translucent. I don't know, maybe your glossary doesn't have it. It says translucent shell. What does translucent mean? That's an English word. We should all know what that means. So what's, so what's the difference between translucent and transparent? Semi-opaque. 
It's semi-opaque. So opaque means you can't see through it. Transparent means you can see through it. And translucent means you can... In between. So you can sort of see through it. Yeah. Okay. It's like what is Light can go through, right? Gen- right. Generally, generally, the, the distinction is made like this. Something which is transparent is that you can see what's on the other side. The appearance of things cuts through. That's the, the, the appearance passes through. With something that's nearly translucent, the light on the other side gets through, but the appearance of things gets distorted and lost, right? That's why you can make a bathroom out of glass brick with a wall of glass bricks. They're all wavy, and you can't really see what's on the other side. But the fact that the light's on or off, you can tell, right? That's translucent. So the light, you, your skin, by the way, is also translucent. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Take a Take a flashlight, put it over your skin, and you can see the light gets through. Yeah. So, yeah, your skin is translucent. Because your tra- skin is like Cleopas Noga. It's like a translucent shell over your body. Except there's no light in your body, so. Yeah. So the idea is that if godliness would be like light, and klipa is a shell covering over that light. Then it would be like bypass. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Then. They have one light on there, not within there. Then. <laughs> then. If then, if the klipa gives no indication whatsoever that there's the godly light inside, then it's an opaque klipa. But if that klipa, that shell, allows the fact that there's godly light to get through, even though what that godly light actually looks like gets lost, it's not transparent, then it's called klipa snoga. So you basically have three categories. You have the side of holiness. Those are things that are transparent. The godly light comes through, and so you can see. There's obviously metaphoric seeing, right? Everyone understands godliness is like, like a green light or something. So, something which is holy, the godliness can co- goes through it, such that if you're sensitive to godliness, you could see the godliness in it. Something which is an opaque clip, where the godliness in it is covered over, so it's impossible to see the godliness in it. And then you have this thing called clipa snoga. If you look at it, could you tell that there's godliness inside? Yes. The same way if you have something that's translucent, you can tell there's light coming from the other side. Can you tell what the appearance of that godliness, what godliness really is? Well, if you have something that's translucent, can you actually see what's on the other side? Like read it, if there's writing, or like recognize someone's face? No. So in terms of giving us a sense of what godliness actually is, the godly light, klipa snoga is just as opaque as every other kind of klipa. The difference is, is that it does give off some indication that there's something else there. Let me give you an example. Okay. Banana peels. I think most of us would not consider those to be food. Yes? No. Not food. Banana peels. Right? Okay. Walnut shells. Also not food, right? But if you give someone a banana and they've never seen a banana for, before and they start holding and examining from the outside, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion that it's probably a fruit and there's something edible in there, right? Because that, that peel does allow you to pick up on certain things that indicate that there's food inside, such as the scent, the fact that it's kind of squishy, right? Whereas a walnut shell, if someone gives you a walnut, you've never seen walnuts before, never heard of walnuts, and you examine the shell, there's really not much you can tell to tell if there's actually anything edible inside. So if this shell, although it doesn't reveal what's inside, but allows you to figure out that there's something worthwhile inside, then in certain sense we say it's a translucent shell. That make sense? So there's two kinds of klipa. Klipa which indicates that there's something inside, and then there's the klipa that's not the klipa snoga. It doesn't indicate anything at all. Yeah. What do we call that We will call it the other unclean klipas. In general, now we're dividing it into two. Okay, but you use the walnut metaphor. Right, because the right because that's a standard metaphor for okay. when you talk about klipa as a general concept. The walnut metaphor is better because, in terms of really knowing what's inside, in that sense, all klipa is the same. 
Like, you can't, like something translucent, you can't really see on the other side of it. But the difference is, do you recognize that there's something on the other side? Is it possible to realize that there's something worthwhile on the other side of this blockage? Well, that means the blockage itself has to have qualities that convey that message. Right? And that's what it means to that Klippas Noga contains good. Because if it didn't contain any good, there would be no indication that there's anything worthwhile there. So the good is not godliness. Okay? It's like if you have, a, going back to my banana example, the scent of the banana is not, that comes through the banana peel, yeah? Or the, um, the fact that when you hold a banana, you can kind of feel that it's soft inside. Those things are not the actual, like, fruit of the banana. Simply smelling the banana and holding the banana and feeling the banana is not the same thing as eating the fruit of the banana in any way. But those things do give people a sense that if I were to pull away the peel, what would be underneath? Good edible fruit. Now, it turns out that the fruit might actually be very different than you thought it was. Have you ever, eat, have you ever gotten a fruit, peeled it open, and it turns out not to be inside what you expected? Orange like the green, like the green oranges <laughs> in Israel, right? It's so confusing. Or the first time, what's it called? The one that has like all of that like seed that's all like a passion, soup. passion fruit. The first time I opened a passion fruit, I was not aware of what a passion fruit was on the inside. I was very disturbed. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna open a fruit. There's gonna be like a fruit. I'm thinking, you know, like I don't know, like something that looks like a fruit that I've seen before, and it just doesn't look like that, right? So just because there's something about this clip that indicates there's something worthwhile inside doesn't mean we actually, it, it, conv- it conveys or reveals what godliness really is. Okay. Now, the reason is because this klipa is comes from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Everyone's familiar with the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Okay. What is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? In, okay. Fine. That's like, you know, if someone asks, like, what's, I don't know, what's, what's a sitter? You say, well, it's in a show. I mean, fine. But so I don't know what it is. What's a tree of knowledge of good and evil? Anyone? It's a tree. I would go that far, right? It has knowledge. And it has knowledge. That's already weird, right? What happens when you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? You get the knowledge of good You get the knowledge of good and evil. It has fruit. Right, it has fruit. And then if you eat that fruit, you get the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. So what is the knowledge of good and evil? Or no one ever was curious about this question because, you know, it's not important. Okay. It's important to know the difference between good and evil. So God's grand plan was that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, should be ignorant of the difference between good and evil. Because he was holding back the, that moral knowledge from them. Because, you know, I don't know, he wanted, like, why would he do that? So, there's different ways of explaining it. They all basically coalesce around the same idea. So I'm going to give you the, the, the spin of Chassidus on it. Although, you can find a similar idea in many other sources. Okay. The knowledge of good and evil is self-interest. Oh. If you are, have self-interest, if you care about yourself, then how do you judge things? And on what, what scale do you judge them? Are they good for me or are they bad for me? And so the whole world all of a sudden gets labels. Right? For instance, poison ivy. Good or is it bad? bad? Why is it bad? It's not good for us. Because it's not good for you, right? But what if that wasn't your frame of reference? Then you wouldn't be able to just easily just label it as bad. Right? Po- I mean, it exists, right? I mean, obviously God sees some purpose and it was wrong with poison ivy, right? But because our frame of reference is what is going to help me and hurt me, what is in my interest, what is not in my interest, all of a sudden, the one unified world that's created by God gets divided into two. How is this going to help me and how is this going to hurt me? And now everything gets labeled as good and bad. Okay, so what is the other option if you don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Everything's good. No. 
The tree, and the tree of what? The tree of the snakes. What? The tree of life. And notice there it's not called the tree of life and death, it's just called the tree of life. Because there's a tree, there's a way of being which is just living in God's world. That's godliness. And then there's another way of being where you're preoccupied with what is in my self-interest. And then the world gets divided into two. Things that are good for me versus things that are bad for me. Okay. Now. But there's an... Now, here's the thing. Let's just stop for a second. Is getting along with people good for you? Yeah. Is having deep relationships good for you? Can you have a deep relationship if you don't care about other people? If you care about other people so you can have a deep relationship, is that gonna allow you to have a deep relationship? Like, think about that for a second. You're trying to care about somebody so that you can have a deep relationship, but the only reason you care about them is the degree to which you think you're gonna get a deep relationship. When they start picking up on that, well, how's the relationship going? Until they So it's of limited value, right? So it turns out what's really good for you? Caring for people not as a means to an end, strangely enough. Like if you genuinely care about people not as a means to an end, then your life actually works out much better. Whereas if you care about people as a means to an end, that's of limited value. And if you don't care about people, you better hope that you're very rich and very strong and have a good lawyer. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself into a lot of problems. And even then, your life is probably going to be pretty miserable. And going back to this idea that you can have a broader perspective on things or a narrower perspective, if you have a broader perspective on yourself, Right. Self-interest is not selfish. Remember what I said about selfish? Yeah. Self-interest, think about it. I mean, first off, just on a very basic level, most things in life, they're not zero-sum. Most things in life, it's not I win by you losing. Most things in life, as the expression go, um, a rising tide lifts all boats. If things, like think about it in a family, if things are going better for one person in a family, that means that things have to be going worse for the other people. No, that's a very extreme and unusual situation. And as you develop into a deeper being and a, with a broader sense of things, um, you, the, the, idea of, the idea of what's contained in this self that you're interested in gets broader and broader. So like when you're two, your self is like literally your physical body in the past five minutes and then the next foreseeable you know, half hour and then that's it. Like beyond, like even your, your individual being a year from now is not even something you consider as part of yourself when you're like two or three. And what happens as you age and mature? Your future is considered part of yourself. Other layers of yourself are considered part of yourself. Other people you consider to be part of yourself. Family, friends, community. And as that happens, what happens to this notion of self-interest? It broadens. It broadens, right? Because I'm interested in, right? So when somebody is willing to... Um, do something for somebody else, right? That's not because they're selfless, as a general rule. It's like they're doing something because they genuinely care about somebody else. That's because they're selfless. Why is that? Like if, if you're going to go out of your way to help somebody, because you get enjoyment from it, them feeling good makes you feel good. It's a very cynical way of thinking about it. And uh, the reason why I say it's like this, the reason why I say it's like this. There is a way that you're helping them is just a way for you to feel good. That's true, that can exist, okay? But there's actually something deeper, which is like the fact that you feel good helping them is because you actually care about them the same way you care about yourself because your sense of yourself is broad enough to include them as well. So you're right, it's not any more like selfless than you taking care of yourself, but it's also not any more like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Manipulative. Like when you're taking care of yourself, it's just like, you know, I care about myself. I care about someone else. Like, okay. I care about myself as, as part of myself. It's not like, it, there is this idea like I'm going to go help somebody because when I help people, then I get a high about feeling good about myself. Isn't that what we discussed yesterday that it's the whole thing about, I think you gave the example of a marriage. I'm doing for someone else, but not in, only for them. What yeah. No, that's different. No, it's different. Yeah. Right. No. So if you, it, the, the notion, the thing is, like, 
The notion that I'm like an island unto myself, it's a lie. And if I believe it, it's harmful for me. And I end up destroying myself on many levels, sometimes even like practically, like on a very, and certainly on, on, on you know, the deeper senses. So somebody who has a sense, someone who has a sense of that, obviously they're caring about other people, um, is as genuine as caring about themselves. It's not, in, in other words, there's like this false thing, like either like I'm doing it just for me and I'm like, I want to feel good about myself, it has nothing to do with you, or like I've somehow transcended and I'm being altruistic, or there's just a very basic thing, like other, my, when I'm hungry, it bothers me, and it bothers you when you're hungry too. Okay, that's it. Like God made us that way. It, re- it bothers me when I'm hungry, it bothers me when you're hungry. I don't need to make it more complicated than that. And if I deny the fact that it bothers me when you're hungry, I'm going to end up making a lot of choices that come out and hurt me in the end. Okay. So yeah, self-interest has a good side. Self-interest has a bad side. And what's interesting is the ba- what's bad for me as in the broad picture tends to be bad for everyone else. And what's good for me in the broad picture tends to be good for everyone else. Do we, always, do we always see it that way? No. What? The game theory is a product of a certain idea of people being autonomous individuals, which is false. Game theory presupposes a level of individualistic psychology, which is relatively recent and something that, from the perspective of Torah, would say is actually um, somewhat. What's the word I'm looking for? Like. Contrived. In other words, people have an individual. I can't say that word. People have a side of them which tends towards seeing themselves individuals. But that is only one minuscule aspect of the grand scope of human psychology. And so, if you pretend that that's the entire person, then you can develop game theory. Um, but if you take in the fact that people are not that way, like in real life, like in real life, I am not engaged in games between me and um, my children for the most part, um, and, and that there is actual genuine care for others and a sense of a larger sense of self that humans have. And then once you take that into account, a, a lot of these things, you know, I'll give you an example. So one of the most basic notions that, that we have in the world is the idea of ownership. You know, like I own this, you own that. Makes sense, right? In a family, who owns what? Really? That's how it goes? Like you're sitting at the dinner table and your parents are like, well, that's my food. So you can buy it, but you don't have any money. Like that's really, that, that's how family interactions work. Like, like this is my food. Pay for I, that's true, but it, with really, really, like when you go out for lunch and buy yourself, like, I don't know, let's say, I'm making this up. You go out and buy yourself like a whole thing of rugelach and you bring it back and there's someone sitting there. You decide to share with them, right? When your mother makes dinner, it's not like, well, I made this dinner for me, but I'll share with you. That's not like what's happening. It's like the dinner is for the family because it's the, now it happens to be, it's kind of communist if you think about it, right? Each according to their means and each according to their ability. The idea of private ownership that like in most healthy functional families doesn't really work. You know what's really interesting? If you go to tribal societies, that extends beyond just like little family units and extends the whole tribe. Um, one of the issues, not the, this is really relevant, one of the issues the Mexican Revolution was fought about is that in the south of Mexico, the, the indigenous peoples did not have private ownership. The whole community owned the town and the fields. There was an idea of private ownership of land. And the central government wanted to make private ownership so they could build estates and factories and things. And then people started killing each other over that. So even a notion like this is my land, is, it's more involved. Right? And so it's true that we have a side of us which is an individual, but that's an aspect of us. And, and when... And the idea, that, the idea that if a person recognizes 
that their being and their welfare is goes far beyond just that limited focus on themselves as an individual. But there's a part of them that is genuinely bothered when other people are suffering. Then at that point, like a lot of a lot of the principles of game theory fall away. I'll give you just a funny little example of this. There's a principle in the Gemara which says Ishte Kegufa, which means a man is like his wife. Um, it's actually, the full expression Ishte Kegufa Dami, which is a man is like his wife. But the joke is that the English the word dummy means you're dumb because not every man gets that he is like his wife. What that means practically is that we assume that we assume that in a healthy relationship between a man and a, and a woman, they are not engaged in game theory. That what is what what is in the interest of one is in the interest of the other. What is against the interests of one is against the interests of the other. Which means they have to develop a different sense of self, and that it plays out in all sorts of factors and all sorts of halachas. It also is a good way to play chess or any other game with your spouse because no matter who wins, you win. <laughs> right? But, so, there's this, there is this notion that like, if in the long run, what is in your self-interest? To beat your spouse at checkers or chess? Or to have this sense of mutual, um, a mutual bond that defines your sense of self? In which case, as long as you're enjoying playing the game, it doesn't matter which side particularly wins. And once you do that, like the motivations in game theory fall away. Game theory is really helpful in economics in the Western world because it's all based on, I'm an individual, you're an individual, I fundamentally don't care about what's good for you. You don't fundamentally, unless it happens to come back to my individual self-interest. But self-interest, the way I'm talking about it here, is self-interest with a, with, with a broad sense of self. Ultimately to the point, and this is more revealed when Mashiach comes, what's good for one is good for everyone. And if it's not good for everyone, then it's not really good for anyone. Now, is that, are, are we fully sensitive to that? No. But there's a side of us that picks up on that and feels that, and that's the good of this klipa. That feels, the side that feels that Self-interest isn't limited to my individual self, but to a broader sense of self. And that creates, motiva- that creates an inclination towards kindness and compassion. Okay. What is, we'll start with compassion. What's compassion? The sense, not the behavior. Because these are senses. What is the sense of compassion? If you have something problematic going on in your life, does that bother you? Yeah. If, you if you got fired from your job, you'd be, you'd be bothered by that, right? And if you also have a sense of you know, responsibility, being bothered would motivate you to do something about it, right? If you were hungry, you would do something to feed yourself, right? Because you being hungry bothers you. What's compassion? That somebody else's problems bother you. So if you are fired and I have compassion, then what do I do? I feel, I feel a desire to help you get a job the same way I feel a desire to help me get a job because your problems bother me the same way my problems bother me. That's the, now, how much you feel that, that's, you know, that's a different question. But that's what we're talking about, compassion. That someone else's problems bother you the way your problems bother you. Does that have to be the same extent? Well, that would be the degree. If you had perfect compassion, it would be to the same extent. If you have limited, your compassion is more limited, then to a lesser extent. But if, you're, but if what's really happening is I enjoy helping you solve your problems, that's not compassion. Why not? Like what? You just happen to like problems. I have like problems. Yeah, there's nothing. Sen- there's no sense of you in it. What, what's that? Why does empathy come in? Mm-hmm. We're gonna not talk about empathy. It's a fraught subject. Um, there are many words. I'll tell you why I don't want to talk about it. There are many words that, at a particular point in the culture get labeled as really good or really bad. And when that happens, it becomes impossible to really talk about them. Um, because you spend a lot of time like getting to a point where you can just talk intellectually about them. And my experience has been over the past few words, empathy has become one of those words that it's just automatically picked up as a good thing. And so we'll leave empathy alone. Why? We have like, really deep conversations about pride and boasting. Yeah. I know, because pride and boasting, people tend to appreciate that there's different sides of it, so we can talk about it. You think it's impossible for this? I don't think it's a talk about I just, the past few years where I've taught chassidus, and every time empathy comes up, I've seen that, I've, I've felt that the conversation was, 
would have been better used by spending time talking about other things. So it didn't seem to go anywhere. Yeah. I might change my mind later, but as of right now, I think. So I might talk about empathy, but I won't let you know that I'm talking about empathy. I won't use the word. Okay. What word will you use? I don't know. <laughs> so now it's like this. Yeah. Normal people don't say, you know what I really want to do? You know what? You know what, you know what really make my day? If I like. If I had a car accident and then had to like help myself deal with my own car accident, right? That wouldn't be like a good day, would it? Right? No. But there are people like, you know, I had a really good day. Why? There was this person that had a car accident. I was able to help them and that was so wonderful. There are people that feel that way. Okay. So what are they lacking? Compassion. Because if they had compassion, right? Nobody wants to be the one who has the car accident, right? So the fact that I want to help the person with the car accident because, because like, their car accident bothers me the same way it bothers myself means I wouldn't walk away saying that was a great day because I get to help someone with a problem. Right? So the way he's describing here is compassion is that the person's problems matter to you in a way that's analogous to the way your problems would matter to you because your sense of, your sense of self-interest is broad and beyond the individual. I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to ask you the question back to you, but make it a stronger question, okay? There's a mitzvah to bury the dead and to mourn the dead. And if we have to do every mitzvah with joy, you see an obvious question? So if we can figure out that one, then, then we'll also figure out this one. But it's a good question, but it's, it's not unique to this issue. There's lots of mitzvahs that seemingly only are done in so-called situation, negative situations where a person who's in the right mindset should feel some sort of negativity. It's a good question. Um, when the Rebbe was mourning for his wife, the Rebbe gave a few talks on that, uh, about the tension there. So, okay. Now, what's kindness, or they translate here as benevolence? What does that mean? Do you ever have the feeling that you earned something, so it makes sense that you should have it? Do you ever have the sense that why should you have it? Why shouldn't other people also have? Not like they have a problem. Okay, I'll give you an example. Most people, most, you, 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 most people um, don't have the following experience. They have a lot of money, and they look at their money like, hmm, why should I have all the money? The other people, I mean, okay. My friend, like, nothing's wrong. He's like, he's fine. He's you know, paid off his mortgage. He has a car. But like, I have $10 billion. He only has a million dollars. Like, why should I have so much money? Give some to him. Where does that stem from? If a person, most people don't feel that way about money. But let's say they did. What would that stem from? Yeah. But what, 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 how do you see them and yourself? Equals. Equals, right? So it doesn't make sense to you why all of this stuff should just accumulate by you. Even if it's not causing any problems with the fact they don't have any. Okay? And you see this, by the way, sometimes when people are very close to each other. Where, like, you don't want, like, all of the good stuff to happen to you. You want it to be equally distributed. Even if the other person is not suffering. It's just you don't want there to be a disparity between what you have and what others have. Okay? So if you have more, you want them to have. Now, what's interesting about this benevolence is that it only works one way. If you have less, it doesn't, this sense doesn't create the sense you're entitled to what they have. It's the sense that it's, there's almost a sense of discomfort of being the magnet that absorbs all the blessings. And so you kind of want like, it to be more distributed equally. Okay? Why is it want to be in the way? What? If you see, if it stems from seeing everyone as equals, why doesn't it want to be the other way? Oh, because kindness, as opposed to mercy, only kicks in when you feel you have beyond what you need. In other words, no, it's not from feeling that you're all equal. It's no, no, no. There's about no. If you're all equal, because if you're all equal, I'm not going to take away from me to give to you if I don't have what I need. If we're all equal, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to take what I need from me in order to give to you. That doesn't accomplish anything. But if we're all equal and I have something, and I'm not going to lose by not having it, then so it spread it around to give you. In other words, there is a there's a kind. So in other words, like kindness. 
much more stems from the sense that I don't need all of this extra and I value other people having it. Whereas mercy is more stems from the fact of someone else is suffering. So in a weird way, even though mercy is more limited because you're only responding to a person's real problems, but on the other hand, you will actually give up stuff out of mercy where you're not really giving, you won't give up stuff out of kindness. The stuff that you really feel is a loss for you. It's like nobody, it's like, it's like you know. Wouldn't that be like the ultimate act of kindness to like give if it's yourself? When Chassidus describes kindness, when Chassidus describes kindness, there's always a sense that you're giving something that you don't need. Now that could happen in this one. That can happen one of two ways. Either you really don't think you need that much. The people like that. The people give away stuff that I'm thinking, like, but you need that. Well, I don't feel like I need it. And a person has come to some realization they actually need a lot less than other people think they need. Okay. The problem with that is you can't then project that onto other people <laughs> because it's a subjective. What you feel you need is very subjective. So out of kindness, I could never take something from you unless I would be absolutely certain that you don't want, need it or feel like you want it in any way, shape, or form. Um, you can see this actually in the mitzvah of tzedakah, which is that the mitzvah of tzedakah is to give people stuff that they feel that they need. And I said the word feel that they need. So what if somebody um, is used to driving a luxury sedan and all of a sudden they can't afford to make payments on their luxury sedan and now they're going through like a bit of a mental um, crisis because they're going to have to drive like a regular car like the rest of us. Is it tzedakah to give them money to make their car payments? Yeah, it is. It is. Now, is it the highest priority tzedakah? No. <laughs> it's like, there's, there's, there's things that might come before that. But let's say all the other priorities come first, then it's tzedakah. Because the idea here is that, yeah, need, it, need it has a subjective quality to it. And so if I don't feel like I need, it's a little awkward. Why should I have it as opposed to you? Now, if all I care about is the individual, well, why do I care that you don't have it? But I don't. I care about us both. I don't need it. You could use it. So give it to you. That's kindness. Even if you're not suffering. But I would never from that place go to you and say, oh, you don't need it, give it to me. Well, how do I know that you don't need it? I'm not in your head. Right? That, 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 that doesn't make, that, that, that comes from being very individualistic and saying my needs per, or override your needs. So the, 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 the desire to distribute can be kindness. The desire to take can never be kindness. Okay. And this is saying that these are innate in every single Jew. Not because we have a godly soul, but because we have an animal soul. Okay? In other words, on our animal souls, as much as we pursue self-interest in a very negative way, right, which are the four negative traits we learned about before, we also have this tendency to pursue self-interest in a very positive sense. By this being bothered by other people's problems and desiring to share our bounty and our plenty with others. Okay? And that side, that our self-interest is not narrowly focused on the individual, is an indication that inside the animal soul there's something more transcendent, there's something godly present, even though that's not actually godliness. Okay, now, why is the altar telling me this? Before you learn Tanya, and someone tells you, you know, you have a godly side and an animalistic side, what would you say the animal is a good example of the animalistic side? Someone tells you an animalistic side and a godly side. What would you give a good example of the animal being animalistic? Any negative quality. Any negative quality, right? Like, I don't know, like stuffing your face full of lasagna, not caring about the starving children in Africa. That's pretty animalistic. Okay. And what would be a godly quality? And giving this up, you see someone in need and it bothers you and you help them. What have we now learned? That seeing someone in need and helping them or wanting to share with others it's also animalistic. Is it bad? Is it evil? But it's still animalistic. Why? What does it mean to be animalistic? You want what's good for you to survive. We want we'll thrive because we're people. Thrive. We want to thrive. Do we thrive by having the sense of a greater sense of ourselves that encompasses other people's needs? Sure. Okay. So, so if the core of being an animalistic is being preoccupied with my self-interest, my own welfare, my own well-being, compassion and kindness are just as animalistic, especially when they're rooted on some gut level, as selfishness, as anger, as any of these other things. Now. Once you're saying, but okay, but, but, but these things are constructive and good, 
and those things are negative and bad and harmful, okay, there is a difference, but they're both animalistic. And so embracing one side of your animal does not bring you any closer to godliness than embracing the other side, yeah. Uncomfortable, or instead of just like leaving it, and then you feel like you still feel uncomfortable. So, if the animal side wants us to be comfortable, mm-hmm. is it more than that? Well, it, it's like this two things. You feel more comfortable helping people than not helping people when, when they bother you, when, when their pain, when, they're, when their tragedies bother you, you feel more comfortable helping them. Number two, you also feel better when you care about other people than when you don't. In other words, a person who walks around and the only person's problems that bother them are themselves tend to be people that are pretty miserable. People whose other, other people's problems bother them, strangely enough, tend to feel better about life. are all still about your well-being. Yeah. And th- we're not saying this is bad, but, it, but in terms of trying to get to something godly, this is not godly. Okay. And so it turns out that what most people consider the conflict between their animal soul and their godly soul is really more often than not a conflict between a short-sighted self-interest versus a broader self-interest. Yeah. What about the myths that like love follow you as yourself? That's that would fall under both kind of mercy and kindness because you're seeing someone you're kind of the way you would want to be treated, you're treating them. So the mitzvah to love your fellow Jew as yourself has to do specifically with the fact that they're Jewish, which means the thing you will have to love about yourself is the fact that you're Jewish. And Jewish is a godly thing that we have to get to. In other words, Kindness and compassion, what you'll notice is that I care about the other person, but the feeling is situational, depends, depends on the situation. Like, compassion kicks in when they're, when they're suffering. Yeah. Kindness kicks in when I have plenty. But if they're not suffering and I don't have any plenty, then the fact that I care about them basically just means what? Doesn't mean much of anything, right? Loving your fellow Jews, we're going to see it, 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 there's something, it's an overused word, but there's something transcendent about it. We'll get to that in chapter 32, hopefully, eventually. Okay. So, okay. Now, I want to add something that it says in Chassidus before we get on to the non-Jews. Um, Even within, so to speak, the good side of the animal soul, you can break that down into good and evil. Which is like this. If I'm on the bus, and an old lady gets on the bus, and it feels uncomfortable to sit there and have her stand, so I get up and let her sit down. Okay? That's clearly the animal soul. It's the good side of the animal soul. If the old lady's on the bus, and if I'm gonna get on the bus, the old lady gets on the bus, and she's standing there, and I say, ooh, now I have the opportunity to do a mitzvah. And so I get up and let her sit down. What's that coming from? What? Self-interest is that is that better or worse than the first example? The first one I get up because I'm uncomfortable sitting while she's standing. The second one I'm getting up because now I have the opportunity to do a mitzvah. It's better. What? Depends why you're doing mitzvah. That's my motivation. Now I get to do a mitzvah. That's for someone else. That's doing a mitzvah. No, it depends why you're doing a mitzvah. it says that that's worse. Why is that worse? I'll explain. Very simple. In the first example, who is important? The other person and myself, right? What bothers me? That I'm uncomfortable. Uh, that's if, right. And what, that's, that's right. Up to give the woman a seat, I would no longer be uncomfortable. That's and true. I'd be totally fine sitting 
That's fine. Because she's sitting. Means two things are important. I'm important to me, obvious. And you know what else is important to me? She sits. That she sits. In other words, the, the, the discomfort of her sitting makes me uncomfortable. The discomfort of her having to stand makes me uncomfortable. So that's what I'm saying is that it's not a dichotomy. I care about her and I care about me and those two things aren't intention and so I'll get up and if I didn't get up, someone else can get up. That's just fine. But on the other hand, if I'm doing it in order to do a mitzvah, then what did I turn her into? An object to use for my mitzvah. That's right. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about only the first thing. Because the idea that it's good is that I actually care about them. I care about them. Now, I care about them because I care about me. I care about me. And so part of me involves some, a, a, an appreciation of, of them. And so if they're suffering, I'm going to suffer. If, they're having, if something's good for them, I'm going to appreciate that also. But if I'm trying to accomplish something that has to do with me and they're the means to do that, that's not this at all. It's not evil in the strictest sense of evil, right? I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not like being arrogant or, or angry or whatever. But I'm, de- I, 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 I'm, I'm not recognizing you know, their well-being and their worth and their value. I'm using them for something. Yeah. But that use is to connect to our God, isn't that a good thing? So you know what Chassidus says? When you do that, God says, well, that's very nice. We'll put that in the mitzvahs that need to be cleaned up and I'll look at later bin. He has a bin of mitzvahs that need to be cleaned up and he'll look at later because he finds them so disgusting and repulsive. Wait, but then that's the idea then that like intention of doing mitzvah. Matters. Now, notice I said he will look at it later. You can clean it up and go back and look at it. It's a mitzvah, but it goes in a special bin in which God says, well, that has to be cleaned up and I'll look at it later. Right now, not... What's more important, the intention or the action? So, that's a separate question. But in terms of the idea of the relationship with God, it's not like you can use a person in order to connect to God and that God's okay with that. That is not true. In fact, this was one of the main criticisms going all the way back to the Baal Shem Tov of the, of, of the Jewish world was that... Other people are not the means for your spiritual growth, which is not true. So how come you can like take a shofar and use it to do a mitzvah? Because the shofar is not a person. But it's a, it belongs to someone. But it's a. I'm not sure what you're asking. Like there's the thing you can use things for mitzvahs. You can't use people for mitzvahs. Someone else's shofar. Yeah. Like- oh, why are you using shofar? That's because there's a general assumption that people are perfectly happy letting you use their shofar. That, 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 that's because that's we presume they would, they would be okay with it because most people are okay with it. That's an that's, that's a, that's a issue of like using people. I still feel like in that case you're taking something that's not yours in order to do a mitzvah, which is okay. No, but it's not because it works the other way around. The presumption is people are very happy to ha- let you use their chauffeur. And the fact that they're not here to ask is not a problem because you can assume they would have been perfectly happy. If you happen to know they would not be okay with it, you cannot use their shofar for a mitzvah. Moreover, any mitzvah that involves wearing down the thing you're using, you can't. So for instance, you cannot take a safer or a book and say, well, I'm losing this for No, because you're losing a book, you actually ruin it. You can't, like, things that doing a mitzvah with would ruin it, we don't assume people would. Using a book ruins a book. People turn pages all the time, and what happens over the time? So blowing in a shofar though, you're getting nasty. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, amongst the Orthodox Jewish men that I've known that have blown shofars, I have yet to see anybody who blows shofar has been particularly bothered by this problem. I'm just letting you know. I'm telling you, as a societal matter, I have never seen. Excuse me, use the shofar. I can't use the shofar. I've just never seen that happen. Really? People just pick up random shofars like. Go, go to a shop and see people trying. Yeah, you go to the store. Like any shofar you bought in a store, like 20 people have blown already. Because you go to the store like, no, that one's not for me. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. So it's a, but 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 that 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 halach is based on on 
on an assessment of what the norm in society is about how people feel about things. It's not saying the mitzvah is more when we override people's concerns. That's not true. Now, I'm not saying that other people's opinions override are more important than the mitzvah. What I'm saying is the idea that you're going to connect to Hashem by stepping on somebody else and turning them into an object, that's not this at all. That's lower than this. Yeah. Same thing, intentions also matter there. The altar is a whole set of chapters to throw into it. But the basic rule is that intentions don't invalidate the mitzvah, but they dirty the mitzvah, and so it needs to be cleaned up later. So I'll tell you like this. There is a, there is a major principle in, in Judaism, which is that, especially when it comes to mitzvahs that help other people, you should never not do a mitzvah because your motivations aren't right. Because that's even worse. Then you're really like, then, like you're, then, you're, then you're saying like, you're only valuing the mitzvah is that I get my mitzvah points. And since my mitzvah points, I'm not getting the full mitzvah points. I'm not having the right motivation. There's no point in doing the mitzvah. That's like the most disturbing thing. That being said, to the degree to which you can get people to have the right motivations, you should do so. Okay. Fine. So what this is saying is, so there is a godly way to do mitzvahs, which we haven't spoken about. But what this is saying is that other people really matter to you, and so their pain bothers you, right? The fact that you have something that you don't, wouldn't, you can, you could, you don't need and they could use, create some desire to share with them. Okay? Those are centered around your well-being, but they're good in the sense they're not selfish. They don't negate the well-being of others. They're not, down, they're not downgrading the status of anyone else. On the contrary, it's elevating their status. Okay. So that's saying that's built into every Jew. Now, um, the Gemara actually mentions three innate qualities of every Jew, which is compassion, benevolence, and um, humility. The altar, but does not mention humility here. Do you know why he does not mention humility? Because we're talking about the animal soul, and the animal soul is not humble. The humility in every Jew comes from the godly soul. In fact, our animal souls, you're familiar with the verse that we are a stiff-necked people, yeah, which means that we're chutzpahdik, that's basically what that means. The, the, the animal soul of a Jew is, is naturally inclined to be chutzpahdik, to be brazen, um, and not humble at all. So the humility is not actually something that's brought. These, are, these traits exist in the animal soul. That's why I'm mentioning them here. Humility doesn't exist in the animal soul at all. Okay. Now we'll do the controversial non-Jewish stuff. The souls of the nations of the world, however, emanate from the other unclean klipas, which contain no good whatsoever. As written in Chaim, Portal 49, Chapter 3, that's from the Arizal. What does it say there? That all the good that the nations do is done from selfish motives. And so the Gemara comments on the verse, the kindness of the nations is sin, meaning that all the charity and kindness done in the nation's world is only done for their self-glorification and so on. So what does that mean? That when non-Jewish people help and share, it's not really because they care about others, it's all for themselves. Good? Not good, it needs explanation, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yes? for their self-glorification when I just asked you the question about doing chesed for chesed hours and you said, well, you should at least do chesed. Mm. So is it a sin for them but not a sin for us? So, this is complicated. Okay. The Alter Rebbe devotes very few lines to this. This is clearly not his main point. I want to first off why this is here. Because the Tanya is written as a guidebook for a Jew. Like, why do I need to know the spiritual makeup of a non-Jew? And if you can tell us so I can know how to treat a non-Jew, well, then you need more elaboration. And in fact, there are other Hasidic discourses that elaborate much, it's much more involved. This is like a caricature. There's others, discourses of the altar himself where he gets more into details. It's not so simple at all. In fact, there's a, there's a concept called the pious non-Jew, the pious Gentile, and his animal soul also is Klippus Noga. In other words, he has an animal soul with good in it as well. So this, the whole, the whole, few lines here, like, it needs to explain what the purpose of them is. Okay. 
So I'm going to give you one, which I relatively simple way of understanding it, of why it's here, and then we can talk more about the details of about non-Jews. What happens if I encounter a Jew and I do not see any kindness and compassion in them? What if you are a non-Jew and you don't find any kindness and compassion in you? What, what would we learn from the what would we learn from the Tanya here? Well, it says that the souls of Jews come from Klipas Noga, which have the kindness and compassion. The souls of non-Jews don't. So, if you're a Jew, is it possible that you don't have kindness and compassion? No. So then, it must be there. It's just hidden, right? In other words, there's something. There's something in in there's something called a foil. A foil is where you simplify the other side of it of an argument or the other side of a situation in order to highlight something about the side you're interested in. The Alter Rebbe is interested in telling you that every Jew has good qualities and yet those good qualities are, are all from the animal soul. Okay? How does he make sure that you realize that every Jew has those qualities? By pointing out that the people that don't have those qualities are only found amongst non-Jews. But does that mean every non-Jew fits this caricature that's described here? No. In fact, Alter himself in other writings says that very clearly. Okay? In general, there, there are actually, there are actually um, three kinds of non-Jewish animal souls, and then there's debate even about the specific that the specifics in, in, in those what characteristics go to what, what characteristics go to the other. Okay. So I'm not going to get into all of that other than to say that there are non-Jews who have animal souls just like us and add a few other important points. Number one, you've heard the idea that the world is being elevated through the Torah mitzvahs that we do. This is an idea that you come across, get exposed to. What does that mean? That means the further back in history you go, the percentage of non-Jews who have souls from Klippas Noga is smaller. And the further along you go in history, the percentage goes up. Why? That's right. So which means, in the Alter Rebbe's time, there were more non-Jews that fit this description and less of Jews that would fit the description of having a soul from Klippas Noga. And as we move closer and closer to the times of Mashiach, that trend gets reversed. In fact, the Rebbe in one of his talks said that in, 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 Western, in the Western world, as a standard rule, it seems that the, the overall majority has switched around. That most people would actually fit into the category of having some, some soul from Klippus Noga. Okay. So this is not, again, this is not so much a statement about non-Jews, but as a statement to more contrast that this kind of reality where you have a soul who has no appreciation of other people's suffering, no interest in helping other people, that doesn't exist by a Jew. If you see a Jew where that's happening, then those tendencies are just being repressed. But in terms of actually what's going on with non-Jews, some non-Jews are like this, some non-Jews are like that, and they, over time, as we do more Torah mitzvahs, the world is a holier and better place. Okay, the Rebbe actually pointed out an example of this. Can you imagine somebody of any country, I don't care what the country it is, getting up at the United Nations, the world stage, and declaring that for the honor and dignity of their nation, they are going to attack the neighbor, their neighbors, steal their resources, enslave their people to show how noble of a people we are. Can you imagine somebody doing that? Like imagine like somebody like putting there, like they have a press conference, it'll be on CNN. We want to show how noble we are as, I don't know, I don't know, whatever country we are, and we're going to do so by taking over another country, enslaving their people, and stealing their resources. That's like, that sounds weird, right? Generally, if a country wants to warmonger, how do we do it nowadays? A country wants to like, justify why they're going to attack another country. What do, you, what do they say? For our safety. We have to protect ourselves. There's human rights violations. Right? In other words, what are you, you, right? the welfare of the downtrodden, the welfare of the oppressed, the welfare of those that are vulnerable, right? that was we used to justify going to war. Okay? Rewind 100 years, even less than 100 years. Throughout so got most of human history. How are wars justified? You have the means to go to war. And it's noble. Yeah. 
In the late 18 and early 1900s, you had great thinkers in Europe saying, a society needs a good war every generation or two in order to bring out its nobler qualities. <laughs> and so like, why did that stop? So the spiritual explanation of that is because the actual spiritual makeup of people is different now. The same, the, the, the idea that you're going to inflict harm just to show how great you are doesn't resonate because it's a, that, that doesn't resonate with the, with the good of the Klippus Nova. But if you have a soul that's totally devoid of that, I mean, the Romans went around like enslaving people and stealing their resources and then wrote about how they're the most ethical people on the planet because they were enslaving people. Not despite their enslaving people, because they were enslaving people. And that continued throughout the Middle Ages, that continued into the Renaissance, and now it's different. And why is it different? Because we refined the world, and the spiritual makeup of people is different. Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing I'm gonna tell you is that, and I put this in the, the notes at the end, that the Rebbe has a letter, it's a complicated letter, anyone looked at the... But the Rebbe says like this, if somebody's gonna do something for self-glorification, like it says here, like the, the nations give charity and kindness for self-glorification. Do you do things that you think are utterly ridiculous and stupid and meaningless in order for self-glorification? Or do you do things that, that you think are, are good and have a high value? So if you have all of these nations who have no good in them doing kindness and charity for self-glorification, that means on some level, what do they appreciate? That's a good thing, which means, can you say they're truly devoid of godliness? Or sorry, truly devoid of goodness? It's a relative, in other words, the good, it doesn't have the same emotional pull. But you can't say they don't appreciate it at all, because if they don't appreciate it at all, they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't do it for self-glorification either. So it turns out, when it says here that they have no good at all, what that no good means, on the level like somebody's pain bothers you like your pain doesn't exist. But that there's no let's use the word, philosophical appreciation of the value of kindness and charity? No, that still exists. And that means that there's still some good in it. Okay? So the reason, what I'm trying to bring out here is that this is really from, if you go into the whole thing of what Chassidah says about non-Jews, it's much more involved, it's much more complicated. Here, the main point is, every Jew has, as part of their animal soul, the capacity to genuinely be bothered by someone else's pain. And if that doesn't, part of that Jew's life, that's not because they're lacking it fundamentally, it's because it hasn't been expressed, it's repressed somehow. Yes? How big can a Jew be considered a Russian Varavai? Sorry. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that? Something like that has well, no good. Well, do we know what Russian Varavai means? Well, we said it has no good. Right. But that was before we realized that all these terms are complicated, right? And I said that we're going to get to that in chapter 11. And when we even get to chapter 11, it turns out that, that the good and evil in that context is different than the good and evil in this context. Right? The words can change their precise definitions. Right? Um, so that's it. Now, the question you asked about it being a sin. So um, specifically, the Talmud discusses the idea of evil empires doing kindness um, in order to perpetuate their power, because when you do good deeds, God rewards you. So, like, think about it like this: is it is it a good idea for the Roman Empire to continue existing? Did you know anything about the Roman Empire? Um, sure. Yeah. So the Roman Empire, right? You know, like destroying the temple, enslaving people. Um, you know. Yeah, that would be nice if like the Roman Emperor would go away and we could like move into like a nicer era of history. You know, maybe hopefully the era of Mashiach, right? Okay, but if the Roman Empire is busy, you know, do, I apologize. If the Roman Empire is busy doing giving tzedakah and doing a few public works campaigns and earning enough brownie points with God that God doesn't destroy them, then overall is that good for society or bad for society? Yeah, but, but now look, but look at this, on, but the thing, to, look at it from a grand historical perspective. It would be better if they would just go away and we could have a better society. There's a concept, there's a concept that evil can continue to thrive as long as it pays some amount of lip service to good. And when then that stops, the evil dissolves. And that's the simple meaning of that Gemara is referring to that. Okay. that
That is true. That is, that is another complication, which is a debate in the Gemara. It's a debate in the Gemara between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Whether, we ta- whether the motivations of the empire ultimately are the overriding consideration or the, or the public works are the overriding consideration. But then, if we're talking about societal issues, not individually. But the, it, and this statement in the Gemara is referring to things on the, on the level, of, on the, level of, the, of, the, of the whole society, like the empire and the government. In Kabbalah, it's used to explain the spiritual idea. So you ask, is it a sin? And in Kabbalah, the word, the Kabbalah, they make a big deal of the word for sin here. There's many Hebrew words for sin. This one is chatas. And chatas, more specifically, means lacking. In other words, devoid. It's empty. In other words, in the words, the word, there's a word for sin, oven. Oven means to distort. There's a word pesha, which more means to rebel. There's a word aver, which means to transgress. Chait, or chatas, generally has the implication of being deficient or lacking. So if you want to take it, if you take the Gemara simply and straightforward, just saying evil empires doing good is a bad thing because they're not generally interested in good and they're paying lip service to good in order to perpetuate their evil reign. If you want to take it the way it's in Kabbalah, which is what he's citing, what it's saying is that when a person is doing something with no genuine, when a person is doing something to help someone else, but they lack any emotional care for that other person, then, that's a fundam- then as a, that act is fundamentally lacking. It's empty. It's devoid of any, any, any spiritual goodness. That doesn't mean that the other person doesn't benefit from it, but there's nothing redeeming on the part of the doer in their soul. When we say al are we, are we talking about that? Touch well, it's a, I mean, yeah. Well, what's interesting is if you look through the al what you'll notice is that it's it that it doesn't actually mention sins. If you go through the the confessional prayers, it doesn't mention sins. The al it mentions the manner of the sin. Like it says, like it's like so you can, like, sins that we did intentionally, sins that we did against our parents. It's like very vague, which means you can like. Like, I mean, I guess if you, like, threw things at your parents, then, like, like, you sinned against your parents. But it could also mean, like, you are deficient in certain regards in your relationship with your parents. And, like, you figure out what that means. It's, it's, it's actually written in a very vague way that doesn't list specific sins. Right. And so you can interpret that on any level, right? Yeah. yeah. And so you're right. Because not necessarily do you transgress the halacha in that but you, you are deficient in your relationship with God in some manner about, that relates to this issue. And so you can adjust the meaning according to yourself. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to spend a lot more time on that. This is not the main point of the Tanya. If anyone is genuinely interested for more reading about what Chassidus has to say about non-Jews um, and they read Hebrew, I can give you sources. If you read English, I am sorry to tell you I do not know what's available in English on the subject. We have Right, but that was, that was just, yeah, that was reading material, okay? But for our purposes, but for our purposes, the, the big takeaway from here is this is a caricature of what Chassidah says that's useful for the Tanya's purpose because the Tanya's purpose is saying this idea of de- being devoid of any compassion doesn't exist by Jews. It exists by non-Jews. How it works by non-Jews, go do research somewhere else. And even when we say they're totally devoid of it, they're not really totally devoid of it. They just appreciate it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Next year, we're going to start. Next year, we're going to start um, Parak Bay's chapter two of Tanya, and chapters two, three, four, and five are an overview of the anatomy and life of the godly soul in isolation. I'm not going to talk about the the spirit, the godly animal soul, just the godly soul. Um, and then when we finish that, see my optimism. <laughs> then we're going to try chapter 6 we're going to go back and talk about the animal soul and its parallels and differences to the godly soul okay. however that will be next year after Sukkot tomorrow we're going to go through something um, about what Chassidus has to say about the special prayers of Rosh Hashanah um, so we're going to be using the Mahasar English as our text so it will be very little text a lot of explaining Obviously, one class won't get that much, and then we're going to have another class on Monday before Yom Kippur. The same thing with some of the prayers, one of the prayers for Yom Kippur. Thank you.